Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the most famous and some of the most haunting words that have ever been spoken. Many of us hear those words and we immediately go in our mind's eye to the cross. The cross of Calvary where Jesus hung and died for our sins. Many of us go immediately to what we know as Good Friday. And yet the reality is that these words, these gut-wrenching words spoken by our Lord and Savior were not original. They were not new. They had been spoken and written long before he uttered that phrase. Because when Jesus was on the cross and he said those words, he was actually quoting Scripture. A Scripture that had been written a thousand years before. A Scripture that he had probably memorized as a young Hebrew boy growing up in Israel. A Scripture that had been written by a king. But that was fulfilled in its fullness by the king of kings. So as we gather this evening to celebrate and to reflect and to think about the events of Good Friday, I want us to go back. I want us to go back even before the cross. I want us to go back 1,000 years before the cross happened. And as we go there, I want us to look at the events of Good Friday through the lens and through the words of King David. As David described events that would be fulfilled by our Savior a thousand years later. So I invite you to open up your Bibles with me and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, and in particular, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Now, as you're turning there, Psalm 22 is truly a, a magnificent piece of Scripture. It is a messianic psalm. It is a, one of the great messianic texts in all of the Hebrew Bible, in all of the Old Testament. It is quoted seven times in the New Testament, all making reference to Jesus. And while Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that points forward to the coming Messiah, it is also what is called a psalm of lament. Now, when many people think of the book of Psalms, they conjure up ideas of worship and praise, and that is true. But it's also true that 55 of the 150 Psalms that we have in our Bible are considered Psalms of lament, Psalms of overwhelming sadness and grief. And I'm thankful for that because there's such a human element to these Psalms. If you were sitting here this evening and you have lived at any length of life, you know that our world is full of overwhelming sadness and grief. But you don't really need to look out at the world, do you? You can look at your own life and know that your own life is oftentimes touched and even filled by overwhelming sadness and grief. And this reality of the Psalms, this tension, this mixture of praise and grief of celebration and sadness, of hope and heartache, leads us to the, the tension that is involved with a night like tonight as we celebrate Good Friday. There is a great tension that exists 
and Good Friday. On one hand, it is absolutely beautiful. It is beautiful. Because we know that on the cross, Jesus Christ died for our sins. We know that his death is essential for our salvation. His death is essential for any hope that we have. His death is essential for the forgiveness of sins. It is on the cross that Jesus paid the penalty of sin. It is on the cross that Jesus secured for us the ability to have victory over the power of sin. And it is through the cross that we have the hope that one day we will live with him where there is no presence of sin. Good Friday is marvelous. It is beautiful. And yet at the same time, Good Friday is horrifying. It's gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. It is absolutely excruciating. It is full of tension. But this is a tension that we must keep. Because if we minimize the beauty of the cross and only focus on the heartbreak, we fail to fully embrace what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And yet on the flip side, on the flip side, if we only, if we minimize the horror of the cross and only focus on its beauty, we fail to fully embrace what it cost for him to go through with it and to hang up there. And so we keep these truths in tension. The truth that this is a tragedy that leads to triumph. This is a death that brings forth life. And this is exactly what we see in our text this evening in Psalm 22. Right from the start. Right there in verse 1 as King David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want us to understand something this evening, and this is extremely important for us to understand what's going on. David is writing and describing a real experience that he is going through. This is raw David. This is what he is feeling. This is what he is experiencing, and he is writing it down. And he's using language at times that is hyperbolic and overtly descriptive to say what he is feeling and what he is going through. And what's amazing is that the Spirit of God leads David and guides him as he writes these words. And in the process, he writes words and he writes descriptions that Jesus is going to fulfill in its fullness literally a thousand years later on Good Friday is the doctrine of inspiration. And so in a sense, Psalm 22 has a double fulfillment. In a sense, it's limited fulfillment or near fulfillment is what David is experiencing and what David is writing about. But its fullest fulfillment points forward to the future and refers to Christ. And this is why Jesus quotes it on the cross. He's saying, go read Psalm 22. I'm pointing you there. I'm giving you a head start. But I want you to read it through the lens of the cross. I want you to read it through the lens of Good Friday. I want you to see how I fulfill what David wrote a thousand years before it happened. And so verse 1 we have this amazing statement. 
And when David writes these words, he is feeling forgotten and abandoned by God. But Jesus takes these, this phrase to a whole new level. What Jesus is experiencing on the cross is something that we cannot fathom. We have no comprehension. It is a foreign experience to you and to me. When you think about death by crucifixion, we know from history, we know from biology, we know from archaeology that it was an awful way to die. It was just awful. But with that being said, that was not the greatest pain Jesus experienced on the cross. The greatest pain Jesus experienced on the cross was not the physical pain associated with the crucifixion or the emotional pain associated with being mocked. But it was deeper than that. It was a pain that is, that is, that is spoken of by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Where Paul articulates that he, the Father, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who knew no sin, the one who left heaven and came to earth, the one who was holy in all of his ways experienced something so foreign so disorienting he experienced the weight of sin he experienced the agony of being our substitutionary atonement as the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world as the book of isaiah wrote 800 700 years before jesus lived chapter 53 the lord laid upon him the guilt of us all, and by his wounds we are healed. Incredible suffering on the cross. And yet even though the judgment of sin upon him and the disorienting feeling of separation was horrible and heartbreaking, it did not lead to a crisis of faith. Look at verse 3. It says, Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Notice that the pain and the suffering involved do not lead to doubt or to a crisis of faith, but to confidence and trust, both for David who's writing it and Jesus who is fully fulfilling it and experiencing it. Also notice that it's in here in verse 3 where we see the reason for the cross. The need for the cross. The motivation behind Good Friday. Verse 3 says, yet you are holy. Holy. You know, when you think about God's motivation behind the events of Good Friday, there's no question one of the great motivations is the love of God. Without question. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, the Father so loved the world, that he, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Good Friday is motivated by the love of God, but Good Friday is also motivated in a result of the holiness of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3, as he is articulating this, and, and later in the chapter, he writes that the death of Christ was to demonstrate 
God's righteousness at this present time. His holiness. The cross declares God's love like no other act. And at the same time, the cross declares God's holiness like no other act. God judged sin and showed his unfailing love at the same time during the same event. And so while David affirms God's holiness in the midst of his suffering and his ability to trust in him, he also confesses that he feels awful and far from God. Look at verse 6. Far from his days as a mighty king. David writes, but I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men despised by the people. David says, I am the lowest of the low. I am a king, but this is how I feel. I feel rejected. I feel humiliated. I feel like a worm. Now think of Jesus on the cross. Think of the rejection he endured. Think of the humiliation he suffered. He's a king, and he's being treated like a worm. He's hanging on a cross in between thieves. He's naked. There's no covering. That's Renaissance art later trying to give him dignity. He's naked for all to see. His body is torn to shreds. Just torn, filleted by the whippings he received. And not only is he physically humiliated, but he's being mocked in the midst of it. And David articulates that. Look at verse 7. David describes it. He says, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. Saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. They are mocking David. They're saying, where's your God, David? Where's your God now? Fast forward to the cross. Listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, as he describes the scene of the crucifixion. This is what Matthew writes, starting in verse 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him. If he delights in him, as he said, I am the son of God. Jesus, mocked, humiliated, beaten. Fulfillment of Psalm 22. We jump down to verse 14. David then Describes how his body is feeling. Just how he is feeling and his body is responding in, in the midst of this suffering and this trial. And this is what he writes. I am poured out like water. 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Think of Good Friday. If you, if you know the science behind crucifixion, and the history behind it and how the Romans did it, you know that they were experts in killing people. And the, and the crucifixion was them at the top of their game. And so I want to take a minute, I want to describe to you what that process looked like. And let me just be honest with you, it's, it's absolutely brutal. It's absolutely brutal. But I think it's important for us to hear it and see how it connects to Psalm 22, and hopefully you will understand as we go as well. Victims like Jesus were often flogged first as their bodies were carved up by the whippings. They were then forced to carry their own crossbar, which could weigh up to 100 pounds, to the site of the crucifixion. Once the victim arrived at the crucifixion site, the, the crossbar was put on the ground and they were laid on it. And then they would get out about seven-inch nails or spikes, and they would drive them about half an inch in diameter in the wrist and nail them to the cross. They would then lift the crossbar up into this pole that was out there called a, a stipes. And the victim's body was awkwardly turned, so then they could nail his feet, oftentimes contorting the body in such a way that it would dislocate the victim's shoulders and elbows like verse 14 said, my bones are out of joint. The position of the nailed body held the victim's rib cage in a fixed position, which made it very difficult to exhale and impossible to take a full breath. And having suffered from the scourging and the beatings and the walk, victims were often weak and exhausted as their strength would dry up like a potsherd. They were exhausted. It would often be hot and the ordeal of having your body destroyed would leave the victim dehydrated and thirsty as their tongue cleaves to their jaw in thirst. And as in John chapter 19, Jesus says, I am thirsty. The victim loses significant amounts of fluid and blood as the crucifixion progressed as they are poured out like water. Ultimately, the mechanism of death was one of suffocation. To breathe, the victim was forced to push up and then come back down, pushing up on feet and legs that had spikes in them. And the body weakened in pain in the feet and the legs would become unbearable and they would, the victim would, would trade breathing for pain and, get, and give up. This is why they would often ex, uh, make the process faster by breaking the victim's legs to expedite the death process. And eventually the victim would succumb, being utterly exhausted or lapsing into unconsciousness so that he could no longer lift his body. Also, due to the loss of blood, the victim suffered from an increased strain on the heart and is believed that oftentimes victims of the crucifixion would die because under the stress of all this, their heart would eventually fail as their heart is like wax 
and it melts within them. And they die and are laid in the dust of death. Words written 1,000 years before Christ was born as a baby in Bethlehem. David doesn't even know the name of Jesus. But God's Spirit is inspiring him to write these words that Jesus is going to come and fulfill in their fullness. And we're not even to the most amazing part. Verse 16 David describes the people surrounding him, and this is what he says about his enemies. He says, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. The first historical record of the crucifixion that we have from history and archaeology is the sixth century B.C. in Persia. David is writing this 500 years before that. 500 years before that. Before crucifixion was even invented. David had no idea what crucifixion entailed. He had never heard of such a thing. And yet he describes it. As the great C.I. Schofield wrote, the proof of divine inspiration is irresistible. And yet he's not done. Look at verse 17. David writes, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. Jesus is naked on the cross and he can look down and see all of his bones and he can look out and see everyone out there staring at him. All of his bones are, are showing and surprisingly he can count them all. Surprisingly, none of them are broken. John chapter 19 verse 32 says this. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Fulfilling another prophecy that his bones would not be broken. And while they did not break his bones, they did divide up his garments and cast lots for them. Just like David described. Verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Almost word for word to Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, as he describes the crucifixion. It says, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Psalm 22 reads as if it's describing history. Psalm 22 reads like it's someone looking back at a past event, not looking ahead 1,000 years. I mean, if you were to take this psalm to your neighbor on Easter and read them this psalm, if they had any background in the faith, they'd probably go, oh, yeah, that's a New Testament text talking about the cross. And then you would say, no. No, that's Psalm 22. That was written roughly 1000 B.C. Our God is sovereign. Jesus is who he says he is. Interestingly enough, at least I found this interesting, there's one thing you don't find in this psalm. A surprising omission. 
One thing you don't find is David calling for his enemies to be punished. Earlier this evening, I told you that Psalm 22 was what's classified a psalm of lament. And a psalm of lament had a pattern. And this was the pattern. A cry out to God, my God, my God, a confession of trust, and a call for punishment. A call for punishment. Typically in these psalms, the psalmist would go through that and then they would say, and God, wipe out my enemies. Take them out. You can do it, God. But not in Psalm 22. It's not there. And the question is why? Where's the call for punishment? And the answer is, you know where else there was not a call for punishment? On the cross. Now Jesus preached judgment in his ministry, but what are his words on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's amazing. The pattern of the psalm takes a back seat to the prophetic nature of its content. It's remarkable. Our God is remarkable. After a final plea for help, the psalm now is going to pivot. It's going to drastically change between verse 21 and verse 22. Look at verse 21. It says, Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. You answer me. It is at this moment where this psalm is supernaturally going to pivot from one of despair to one of deliverance. And the pivot point is none other than the resurrection. The resurrection. It's a psalm that goes from Good Friday and then pivots to Easter morning. After saying, you answer me, look at verse 22. David, all of a sudden, completely different, says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. When, when Jesus Christ is on the cross, he makes seven statements. We've already spoken of three of these. The, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I am thirsty. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then right at the end, right before he dies, towards the end of his life, he, he says, Tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. It is finished. And as Jesus is about to die, I would imagine that he is thinking, his thoughts at that moment are this. This is not the end. I am coming back. And there was probably some excitement there, I would say. And what is he going to come back and do? He's going to come back and tell of thy name to the brethren, to the disciples, to his followers. He's going to praise God in the midst of the assembly. 
He knew that because of the resurrection, the afflicted will be satisfied. His face will no longer be hidden. He had heard the cries and answered them. Because of the resurrection, his people will live forever. Psalm 22 is a psalm which starts with the crucifixion and ends with the resurrection. It is the passion of Christ and the resurrection of our Lord predicted and described a thousand years before it happened. David closes, concludes in verse 30, writing these words. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has performed it. He has done it. Listen to that promise. A people who will be born in the future. A people who will be told of his righteousness. A people who will then turn around and declare to others what God has done. What God has performed. And what's amazing is you know who's included in that promise? We are. We are. As those who heard of his righteousness and declared it to others that he has done it. He's performed it. And what God has done, what God has performed by his life, his death, and his resurrection is the very heart of our gospel. Christ died for our sins on Good Friday. The scriptures predicted it and history proved it. Christ was raised from the dead. The scriptures predicted it. And history proved it. And that is why we gather together this evening. That is what we celebrate as we come together Sunday morning and every other morning. This is the hope of the world. This is the reason we exist. That Christ died for our sins. And that Christ rose from the grave. It is the gospel of grace. And friends, it is the message of Psalm 22. And that is so so special and so good. We look forward to seeing you Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the, the words I think of as I was just reflecting on this text were the words of C.S. Lewis where he talked about how God, that you whisper in our pleasures, but you shout in, your, in our pain. And then I was thinking about how our scripture, our Bible, sometimes I feel like it is a whisper and sometimes I feel like it is a shout. And God, Psalm 22 is you on the megaphone. It is divine. God, you are in control and you are good and we can trust you. And we, when we are in those times where we are in the psalm of lament of our life, you are worthy of our trust and you are worthy of our praise. And you are a God who knows what it means to suffer. As you suffered in a way that we cannot possibly imagine. You identify with the suffering of this world. 
You are the suffering servant. You are the Lamb of God. And yet you are the King of kings. You are our God. And so God, we come before you in humility and worship this Friday night and give you what is due for you, what is due and proper, and that is worship and praise. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for giving us the hope and the life to come through your resurrection, which we celebrate on Sunday. Thank you that this is not all there is. Thank you that this is not the end. Thank you that our sin does not keep us from life with you. For you are merciful, you are loving, you are holy, and you are good. And so, God, we praise you. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.